0: Liz is going to come and share some things that have been happening this week in her life. Thanks, Liz. Thank you very much,
1: um, Debbie. Yes, I was at the Outlook conference um, this week. It is, Outlook Trust is an organisation that we've been paying a small subscription to each year. And also, you may not realise this, but Open the Book, which we're so excited about, We first started hearing about that at a previous Outlook conference about six years ago through talking to people, and Sue Metcalf and Brenda Morley came back really excited about this and started sharing that. Outlook Trust is a small charity that seeks to share the Christian faith with the over-55s and resource people in doing that and also, you know, acknowledging that the elderly have so much to offer to us. If you want to know more, there are some leaflets in the sewing room uh, towards um, the door on the side there. So do take one and have a look at it if you would like to. I went with Esther Carpenter, and uh, she isn't here today, but do talk to her when um, she's here next week. She was thrilled and excited about it. But I went tired, drained lacking in vision. And I said to myself, Liz, you need a holiday, not a conference. Come on. (laughs) Esther, more sensible than me, perhaps booked it as a holiday. (laughs) So do share with her. But I came back inspired, encouraged, and with renewed vision and energy for the The role that I feel God has called me to within the church here. We had such uplifting worship that really took us into God's presence. And uh, it was just wonderful. We had some extremely good talks and seminars from people very experienced in the field of working with over 55s. And um, a number of them were younger than me, a good deal younger than me. And I haven't been able to process it yet but it was certainly spot on and really uh, first class in the material that was being shared with us from speakers who are nationally recognised. And then, of course, there was chatting to people around the tables, always so special at a conference like this, over lunch, over a meal, over coffee, and hearing other people's stories. Just great. There were some younger people there too, not just to lead the worship, which they did brilliantly, but Julia here, in her twenties, getting married later this year, is a member of Outlook. She has a real heart for older people, and it was great to meet some younger people, though of course most people were my sort of age, or a little bit younger, or a good deal older. And how inspiring to meet these two well into their 80s and still, still carrying on sharing their love of Jesus with people around them and involved in seniors' ministry. I have a photo of these two with my mother. That's why I took the photo, to jog her memory, years ago when they were involved in evangelistic outreach together together. And they're always at the conference. Isn't it great to see them? And how encouraging. I began to feel, you know, when I turned 70, maybe I should sort of ease off a bit. I'm not quite there, but I'm not far away. But Debbie, I'd like to keep going a little longer, if I may. God willing, God willing, I would like to keep going. But people like this are still enthusiastic about sharing what God is doing in their lives. I went with obstacles, difficulties, most uppermost in my mind, as we seek to keep going with our, sort of maintain our ministry to seniors and even develop it. I come back with opportunities more there. I haven't thought through it all. I haven't even worked out what boat I'm in and what boat I needed to step out of quite yet, but more with the potential there. You know, by 2050, I'm told, one in four in the population will be over 65. And the government's already worried. How are we going to provide care? What are we going to do? What about the drain on the NHS? It's already an issue. And it's, it's, it's a headache for people. For us as a church and as Christian people, it gives us immense opportunities to be planning and to be working because our population uh, is going to get older as the years uh, go by. And the thing that probably has stayed in my mind at the moment is a word that was given in the final message. God's dreams are bigger than ours. Never stop dreaming dreams. Never stop dreaming dreams. And that's the prayer of my heart And I call you, too, to be dreaming dreams, whatever area of life in the church really captivates you. Dream dreams and share dreams. And those dreams are for all of us. You know what Peter quoted from on the day of Pentecost, from the prophet Joel. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, whatever age, men or women. Let's dream those dreams with God and share those dreams with one another. And just finally, we've got our summer event coming up. And if you didn't get a flyer last week, please take one. And if you thought, yes, I might be able to do something there, but you haven't quite got around to it, uh, would you see me, Karen's here from our team today, and let us know. Thank you very much. Thank you, Debbie.
2: The reading is taken from St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 42 to 48. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him. And how she had been instantly healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord.
0: And Jesus, we so want to be in your presence. Would you speak to us now? Show us ways in which we can do that more and more. Amen. Do you please take a seat. In 1985, I had a visit to Berlin. Berlin at that time was still divided. I was um, studying German and had to spend some time in Germany and took the opportunity to visit Berlin at that time. It's a very strange experience being in a city that is divided into two. I actually went into East Berlin, which was really eerie and quite well, quite scary in some ways. It felt very odd, very strange. A very strong sense of a divided city. Back in West Berlin was a little museum, which is still there. Um, das Haus am um, Checkpoint Charlie. It's a, a, an old building with lots of funny little cor- um, rooms and corridors. And it still is there, and we were there two years ago. And it tells the stories of people who tried to leave East Berlin and get into West Berlin. Some of them successful, some of them not successful. And the desperate measures that people took to get away from East East Germany, East Berlin, into the West, into what they sensed to be freedom. People hiding in cars, people creating little planes and trying to fly over. Somebody... Squashing themselves up into a suitcase. Going there in 1985 when the wall was still up, it was heart wrenching. To see the desperate measures that they took, how keen they were to get to freedom, to cross a boundary, to cross a barrier that had been imposed upon them. When you are desperate, you will do anything. And the story after story after story told that. Our passage in Luke is a story about a woman who is desperate and who will do anything to cross boundaries that have been imposed upon her to meet Jesus. She's a woman that is desperate to seek help. She's been ill for 12 years has been to lots of doctors. Nothing has helped. And she senses some hope in this man, Jesus. Perhaps she's heard stories of healings already. Perhaps she's observed from a distance. But she has a problem because she has to cross legal and religious boundaries that have been clearly drawn and rigidly forced. She cannot... Approach Jesus without taking desperate measures because she's unclean. She is a woman who is suffering from bleeding and is classed as unclean. And in Leviticus, we read about the laws that then form the base of the Jewish religion and set these boundaries in place. It is clear what makes somebody unclean and the consequences of somebody who is unclean. They have to stay away from other people because they will pollute the people they come into contact with. So if anyone comes into contact with somebody who is unclean, they lose their ability to communicate with God. They might even lose their hope of salvation that is the threat of coming into contact with somebody who is unclean so boundaries and barriers were set up in order to keep people apart the threat of being polluted by somebody who was unclean was so great that these strict laws were put in place to prevent that from happening she couldn't worship she could not come into the temple because that would defile the temple. So for 12 years, she's been unable to worship God in the temple. She would be kept apart from the rest of society, out on the fringes, where nobody would want anything to do with her. Imagine what life has been like for her. Rejected, abandoned. No hope of encounter with God. And she's ill. But she senses a glimmer, a possibility that things could change. And so she's prepared to break every barrier that exists. She comes into the public arena amongst people she's not allowed to be with. She squashes in this crowd. Think how much contact there is in a crowd. She knows she's defiling all the people around her. She knows or has a sense of who this man Jesus is and dares to defile him, to pollute him by reaching out and touching his cloak. We sometimes think of this woman of acting in a timid and in a nervous way. All she could do was touch the edge of her cloak. If we only had a tiny bit of faith and only touch the edge of the cloak, we've sometimes used this passage in that way. But actually, I think she is one of the boldest, most daring people that we read about in Scripture. She has such a desperate need for Jesus in her life that she is willing to risk everything, to break every rule, to be I don't know what the punishment would have been for this. But the stigma alone, when people realised what she'd done, would be enough to prevent most people wanting to do this. But she wants to meet Jesus. She wants to encounter him. She wants to touch him because she knows and sees in him the possibility of being healed. And so she does it. She takes that desperate step and goes... And touches the edge of his garment. And immediately Jesus says, who has touched me? And all the people around him are saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're in a crowd. Of course people are touching you. He says, no, someone's touched me in a different way. I know because the healing power in me has been used. Somebody has been healed. Who is it? Again, she could ignore that. Would you own up to that? Knowing what the consequences could be? But she stands and in front of the whole crowd explains why she has touched him. And Jesus turns to her and says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She already knows that she's healed. And he tells her, your faith has healed you. Now, there didn't need to be any conversation at all. Jesus knows that she's healed. She'll know that she is healed. They could never have said anything at all. But actually, Jesus is saying something more. The word that is used here, your faith has healed you. The word healed has a double meaning. It means the, the physical healing, but it also means your faith has saved you. Because Jesus sees in this woman a faith in who he is. She believes in him for who he is. And so she receives salvation and she receives his blessing. What an amazing story on both kinds. The woman who crossed all those boundaries, all those strict rules that are really seriously kept, and a woman's the worst person. You know, they're the least in society. And she dares to break those rules. But Jesus equally breaks those rules. And he stretches out across the religious boundaries, the social stigmas, and he looks at this woman and says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. All the barriers are broken in that moment. And the encounter transforms the woman. And the encounter is there as a model for us in something amazing that can happen. What drove her? Her desperate need. What drove those people in East Berlin to face the threat of death? A desperate need. What also drove her was her confidence and belief and faith in Jesus. If she didn't believe in who he was, she wouldn't have taken those risks. So there is a sense in which she needed both. She needed to have a deep faith, a deep sense of who Jesus is, and also that desperate need to propel her into it. I wonder, this has been puzzling me, or not puzzling me, it's been sitting heavily with me all this week. I wonder how desperate we are to meet Jesus. We talk about wanting an encounter with Jesus. We've got a, this week we had encounter. We had our worship and prayer evening, where we long to come and draw closer to Jesus. I have many, many conversations with many of you. And in my own life, this deep desire to be in the presence of Jesus, to know him deeper in my life. And I think, what do I need to do for that to happen? What program do I need to follow? What book do I need to read? What conference do I need to go to? And actually, what I need to do is is recognize my need of him. Because it's only when I fully recognize my need of Jesus that I will do anything to encounter him. And he will meet me in that. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. So I know that. I know that Jesus longs to meet me. That he's waiting with his arms open. I have the faith and the confidence in that but I don't acknowledge my need of him or I think I can do it in my own strength and in my own ability. Or I'm fearful. Or it's too big a risk. Or all these things that go on. This encounter in Luke is one where this woman's life is turned upside down and completely transformed by meeting Jesus. I want a life that is completely transformed and completely turned round by Jesus. And I want to know without question of a doubt that it is Jesus in my life that is doing that. It could not be anything else. So what do I need to learn from this woman? I need to recognize that there are boundaries and there are barriers. In two ways I want to look at this. I want us to think about the boundaries that we put up. And then I want us to think about how desperate we are to cross those boundaries. The Jewish authorities, not intending to do so, had put up such amazing boundaries that people were prevented from encountering God. You were stuck in a box and in that box, you had to conform to the rules that were put upon you. And rather than the rules allowing this great experience of God, they were limiting. And Jesus came to change that. It wasn't about the rules anymore. And we don't live by rules. Our salvation doesn't depend on how much we keep the rules. And we know that. And yet we still put up the boundaries. Yesterday we had a morning for the PCC, beginning to think about elements of growth and and where we're moving forward and and where God might be taking us in the future. And we had someone come and and help us with our conversations. And we were recognising that for the vast majority of society, church and God and Jesus don't feature at all. And you begin to think, well, if they don't even understand or have any sense of, of Jesus being relevant in their lives... Why would they come into this place? What boundaries are we putting up to actually make it very difficult? If meeting Jesus is a simple encounter, why have we made it so complicated in church? You need to come at a certain time on a day of a week. So you've got to be available at 10 o'clock on a Sunday. You've got to understand the culture and what you do and where you sit when you come in. You've got to sing. How many places in society do we ask people to come in among strangers and sing? You've got to know what confession is. You've got to understand communion if you have communion. You've never been in a church before. We talk about the body and blood of Jesus. You've got to look like us. You've got to be like us. Because we want you to come in, but actually, if you're a little bit different, that, that's a bit scary for us, isn't it? So there's a sense in which you've got to come and you've got to conform. What boundaries are they that we are putting up that prevent others from coming to know Jesus? I am continually being blown away and in deep confusion about the way that, that God encounters people because in my mind, I, I think I've got it sussed. I think I understand how God meets people. And then I have a conversation with somebody. And from nowhere, they, they come and say, you know, I've never been to church in my life. Don't know anything about Jesus, but I was walking along in Blackheath Common and I had this real sense of God. And I don't know what it means, but it was real. And I think, wow. And that happens. But they don't know the Bibles. They've never been to church. And they don't know the language. But they express an experience of God. And I think, what do I then do with that? Do I then say, that's fantastic, but then you've got to come and actually fit into all our little categories. God is meeting people. People are encountering God. They're meeting Jesus and they don't know who he is. But they're sensing him. We have wedding couples who come choosing to marry in church. They could marry in beautiful stately homes. So it's not because the only choice is a horrible registry office or a church. You can marry in beautiful places. And wedding couples come and say, it doesn't feel right not to marry in church. We want to make our promises in church. And they're expressing something deep inside that says, we can't explain it, we can't articulate it, but there's something about this God thing that is important. And at the beginning of our marriage, that's a really important factor for us to do it in church. People are having a sense of God, that don't necessarily fit our church rules and conventions. Our Christian culture. What does a Christian look like? What do I think a Christian looks like? Like me. But actually, even around the world, in churches in Africa, in churches in China, Christians don't look like me. Let alone people who have never been in a church culture. What boundaries do I put up that are limiting that sense of of encounter with God. But then what boundaries have I put up in my own life? That's the boundaries for other people. But what are the boundaries that I've put up for myself? I think there's three things, three barriers I put up. I don't let Jesus in. I don't see Jesus in others. And I'm not prepared to meet Jesus in new ways. Why don't I let Jesus into my life? I let him into most of it, to bits of it. Sometimes it's a tiny bit. But I want to keep control. So when I say I want to encounter Jesus and I want to know him in my life, I want him to fill my life, I can't hold on to any control, can I? I've got to say, take it all. Take it in. I was thinking about Rachel Truewick this morning, about to be consecrated as the Bishop of Gloucester. I bet she's dazed when she thinks I wish I wasn't doing that. But actually, her whole life, and she talked about that sense of calling about being who God has made her to be. If she wants to be who God has made her to be, it means the whole thing, doesn't it? And for her, thankfully not for everybody, it's a calling to be the Bishop of Gloucester. But was my calling? And where does God come into the whole of it? What about my vulnerabilities? I like to be strong and in control. I'm a mum and I take care of things. I'm also a bossy big sister. And I sort things out. I sort people out. And I want to sort my own life out. How often am I willing to fall on my knees in tears and say, I cannot do it, God, only when I'm desperate? Why do I wait until I'm desperate before I fall on my knees and say, I cannot do this on my own? It takes me to the very edge before I will say, Jesus, come in and help me. Why does it take me so long? Will I let Jesus into my disappointments? That's a hard one, isn't it? We go through life. I can't remember the um, Forrest Gump quote, so I'll not try it. But it is—it's a box of chocolates, isn't it? And you don't know which one you're going to get. And life deals us rubbish. How do we deal with those disappointments? Do we shove them down? And say, I'm going to pretend it's not even there. But it's festering away. Or do we do the painful thing? And do we go to Jesus and say, life has dealt me something really rubbish. Help me. That's a a scary thing to do because it takes our vulnerability. But we can't have that encounter with Jesus if we're not letting him in to those areas of our lives. So do I let Jesus in, or is that a boundary? A movable boundary, perhaps, but it's still a barrier. Do I see Jesus in others? I see Jesus in the way that I expect to see Jesus in other people. Am I willing to be surprised, to be amazed, and to actually see Jesus in, in people who I think perhaps, I don't even think they could know Jesus. Their behavior doesn't look as if it could be right. Am I willing to see Jesus in other people? people that I find hard to get on with, that I'd rather push aside because actually the fact that I find them difficult means that I've got to sort some things out in my own life before I see Jesus in them. Is that a barrier that I am putting up? Do I see Jesus in others? And then finally, will I meet Jesus in new ways? Am I willing to move out of my comfort zone? I'm so pleased you had that caught up about the dreaming dreams with God and never stopping to dream. John Ortberg said this, if you live in fear, you will never experience the potential that God has placed in you. If you live in fear, you will never experience the potential that God has placed in you. If I live in fear, I will not move out of my comfort zone because it's safe. But am I willing to meet Jesus in different ways? In worship, in prayer, in discipleship, in service. When I was training, I trained um, through uh, a college in Salisbury. And we had a a week's Easter school uh, each year. And one of the years, we had this um, title of, of Finding God in the Unexpected Places. And we were invited to, there was various places that we could spend two or three days meeting god and one of them was salisbury cathedral and i chose that because i found it really hard to meet god in salisbury cathedral i used to sometimes go to evensong when i arrived on a friday evening part of me adored it part of me was highly critical because i would sit and watch the choir and when they'd stop singing one or two of them would bring out their books and read them under the stalls and i said god These these choristers are are not even, you know, there they are praising God, but you know they're only doing it with their voices, they're not doing it with their hearts. And I felt very hypercritical of that. And you paid to get in to see Salisbury Cathedral, I had a real problem with that. Endless coaches would come, and I was so critical in thinking, Salisbury Cathedral is not a place where you meet Jesus. So I chose that, because I felt a nudge. and and the first day it just proved all my senses I sat in the cafe and looked around the gift shop which had nothing Christian in the gift shop and I thought, "I'm right it's just become a tourist attraction and the second day I I sat in a a chair towards the back and I I said to God, I remember very clearly I said, okay God, if you're here you're going to have to show me you're going to have to show me where you are And I watched a little old lady with her shopping trolley come up and cross the cathedral and go into a side chapel. And I realized it was a 12 o'clock communion service. And I thought, okay, God, is this what you're saying to me? Is this old lady going to show me something? And my heart sank. Because when I was a teenager, I remember going on a school trip, and I was only allowed to go on the school trip. My dad was ordained if I was allowed to go to church. He was horrified that the school trip had made no provision for Sunday worship. So I had to get out of the youth hostel at 7.30 and go to York Minster on my own for 20 minutes of a communion service in York Minster and then go back to the youth hostel and have breakfast. And in my mind, communion services in cathedrals weren't really the thing either. You know, it was 15 minutes. We started when the clock struck 8 and at 8.15 we'd finished the whole communion service. Learned something in that. So my heart sank and I thought, God are you asking me to go and follow this old lady into this communion service? So I went. And um, she sat quite near the front and I thought, I'm not going to. So I sat near the back. And I thought, okay, come on God, show me. And then a couple came in and sat behind me. And they they, they looked like tourists. They looked like they'd come from a, one of the, the bus parties. As they were speaking, I could see they were American. They looked really, really uncomfortable about being there. And they wanted to sit further back than me. And um, the service started, and so they were just behind me. And they were not engaging in it at all. And I was kept watching this old lady thinking, what are you going to show me, God? And when it came for communion, we had to go and stand at the front in a semicircle. And this couple stayed in their chairs. So I went out, and it, was, it wasn't done very well, if I have to say. They hadn't really created enough space, and so you had to shuffle to get your way in. And I, kind of, and I thought, well, I'm comfortable here. What if you're not comfortable? And I got my way in, and it was a little bit awkward. And then the, the, the vicar started coming round with the bread. And this couple came up behind me and stood behind me, not in the circle, but there. And as they were offered bread... The tears poured down their faces. And they met Jesus. And I don't know what was going on in their lives. I don't know they looked troubled. I don't know what experience they'd ever had of church. But I know in that moment of holding out their hands in the most awkward way, the most uncomfortable way, completely out of their comfort zone, in a place that wasn't easy to be, they did the daring thing They stood there, they put out their hands, they received the bread, and the tears flowed down their faces. And I left and I said, God, you are in this cathedral, because I have seen you meet this couple. I will never see them again, I will never know nothing about their lives. But there was something in that moment that showed me that God meets us in the unexpected places, in the unexpected people. When we are willing to take that step that is painful, that is difficult, that crosses all the barriers, and we do it at the very edge, not really wanting to be there, and in his glory, in his grace, and in his mercy, Jesus pours his love out to us. That wasn't part of my notes. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) The woman reached out and touched the edge of the cloak, having broken every rule that existed because she wanted to meet Jesus. My lovely couple reached out to Jesus across all the barriers that were there that they put on themselves and everybody else have put on them. We've got a choice. If we want a fullness of Jesus in our lives, we've got to reach out. We've got to accept the invitation. We've got to step out. We've got to be daring. We've got to be bold and say yes. I'm going to end by showing a video clip that again, Paul had put a different video clip on for me last night, and I went to him and said, I'm really sorry. It's not the right clip. It's this one we need to have. And this is a video clip that is made by somebody at Lee Abbey, and it's a song. It's a song called I Hope You Dance. It's not a Christian song. But the, the person who's made this film has used it as an invitation for us as Christians. To dance, when we've got the choice, are we going to let the barrier step in our way? Or are we going to dance and meet Jesus in all his fullness? Can we have it, Keith? Thank you.
3: I hope you'll never lose your sense of wonder. Get your fill to eat, but always keep that. Hum- Take one single breath for granted God forbid a love ever leads you empty-handed I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean Whenever one door closes, I hope one more opens Promise me that you'll give faith a fighting chance When you get the choice, sit it out or die. I hope you did. chances, but they're worth taking. Love might be a mistake, but it's worth making. Don't let some help that heart leave you bitter. When you come close to selling out, reconsider. Give the heavens above more than just a passing glass. When you get the choice, to sit it out or dance, I home you. the ocean. Whenever
2: one door closes,
3: I hope one more opens. Promise me that you'll give faith the fighting chance. And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance.
0: Father God, the woman came to you in fear, in trepidation, not knowing what that outcome would be. She touched you, she met you, and her life was transformed, and she went home dancing. Father, we want to dance. We want to dance with you. May we never sit out and miss out. May we take those steps of boldness and of faith. And may we know you in all your fullness.
3: Amen.